Welcome to Funds That Won, where we dive into some of the world's most renowned investment funds. We'll interview investment managers across the alternative landscape and learn how they built their million and even billion dollar asset management empires. We'll explore teams, structures, strategies, and best practices in launching and running alternative investment funds. All right, today I've got Nick Singleton with Aim Ventura Capital in the studio with me today. Nick, welcome in. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, great. Great to have you. Um, so why don't you start off by giving me the elevator pitch on Aim Ventura Capital. Yeah, uh, Aim Ventura Capital, uh, we were established um, beginning of 2019. Uh, the birth of, of Aim kind of came about from, from Greg Cole. So Greg Cole was the former CFO of Conservus, big utility building company based out of Logan. Um, Greg joined Conservus early 2000s, I believe it was 2000, 2001 time, as employee number three or four, was with them through a large transaction in the end of 2018, sold for just shy of a billion dollars, sat mostly in the CFO chair during that time, you know, experienced, obviously, you know, growth from three employees to 2,000 employees, saw a lot of what an entrepreneur goes through our journey. And the things that a company needs to put in place to be valued ultimately, you know, and obviously they're going through a large exit with that. That's when he ultimately took his exit from Conservice in the 2018, partnered with Adams Wealth Management at Logan. Craig Adams is a partner there, very forward thinking, wealth advisor up there. They partnered, raised the initial capital, started funding in 2019. 2019, five years old now. Mm -hmm. Uh, tell me, are you, uh, how many funds have you deployed out of? Are you just still deploying out of this, the first fund, or where are you guys at? So the original fund, we invested uh, $30 million across 11 portfolio companies, mostly here in the Utah area, a few out-of-state ones. Uh, following that, we did a, a sidecar follow-along fund, another $17 million. So today, about $47 million across 11 companies. Exited two and a half of those so far and one unfortunately went bad so the current portfolio is eight and then looking forward to no concrete plans on fund two but looking forward to a fund two sometime in the near future hopefully great so okay so 11 portfolio companies that's pretty concentrated uh somewhat at least for for traditional venture strategies talk me through you know Maybe, was that the plan from inception? Were you targeting only about 10 or so companies? Or was it, did you end up writing bigger checks than you had anticipated? Or was that a fundamental piece of the strategy? Uh, there was no con concrete strategy coming into it. It was, you know, investing in good companies and then re-upping in some of those good companies. You know, so, you know, I would say about half the portfolio, we've done more than one check into it. You know, sometimes it is in a seed followed along by an A, or an A followed along with a B, or bear trans in between that. And so we re-upped on what we felt like was some of the winners. Gotcha. And uh, was that all out of the first, well, I know you did the follow-up vehicle, mm -hmm. but out of the first fund, did you like reserve for follow-on investment or did you principally allocate you know, the majority of the 30 million across those uh, So So we had it structured originally as an evergreen fund. You know, so we kind of raised money as we saw opportunities. Originally, so we, we we started out with with a few target investments, deployed that capital, then had some more opportunities, raised money along the way, and that's the unique structure we had with the wealth manager uh, as a GP in the fund is that we could raise money a little bit differently. Gotcha. 
So how much was your uh, initial close for? Do you know how much you officially kicked off the gates with? So the, the first check we ever deployed in uh, the first investment was just over $5 million. Gotcha. So it came out of the gate with a pretty decent sized check. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I got to ask, so is, was, that, was that via SPV that you rolled up into the fund? Or was that, hey, we got this fund, we got this first deal, we're going to raise into this first fund? And no, that was part of the original fund. So, so Greg had kind of, and, and I joined uh, when the fund was about a year old, but, you know, I have a lot of background on, on how that was kind of structured initially. Greg had kind of eyeballed and targeted some investments, so he kind of knew what was coming down the pipeline and where he wanted to start placing that money. Gotcha. And which, uh, you know... So talk me through a little bit more of kind of your investment thesis. Uh, identifying good companies, like uh, do you have specific buy box criteria, specific mandates, or you know, where does where does aim fall? So to be completely candid, we we learned a lot with, with Fundwood. We learned kind of what we were good at. We kind of had a, a, a structure that we put in place, and you know that was to focus on on mostly kind of the prop tech space. You know, Greg's background came from, from large prop tech and had some deep roots and deep experience in that space. So we kind of started out with with that vertical in mind, but it veered off into some other verticals. And now today about 50% of the fund is still prop tech with, with a little bit of FinTech, SaaS, and consumer technology products in it. You know, so our, what it kind of shifted to was more of a broad tech focus. We were going to look at anything that had a technology component to it, like anybody else in the space, loves recurring revenue, subscription-based model. And so that's kind of what it came about. And then we learned kind of throughout the, the life of the fund that we were better investors when we saw companies that were doing one to two million investments. You know, so that's kind of, now we feel like we've kind of got our, our investment thesis concrete. You know, one to two million in revenue good solid management teams, good subscription revenue model to it, and something that we feel like that we can come in at that one to two million revenue range once they've kind of got through that initial MVP hurdle, they've proven their product, and that's when we can really help them kind of build a scalable management team and an executive team to take it to the next level. So, okay, so you're kind of narrowing down uh, any geographic emphasis uh, in your strategy. I know it sounds like you primarily invest with Utah-based companies, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, any any geographic concentration moving forward? Or? Would prefer Utah, but we'll call it regional. Utah yeah. and, the, and the surrounding states. Does that matter to your LPs? Right? As you, as you go out and you talk to investors, they care about the fact that they're investing close to home? or uh, Most of them doesn't. No. Yeah. no, that's just for us, you know, because we want to sit with that entrepreneur frequently. And we do. We do. With, we have a few passive smaller investments that we don't do as much with, but I spend a big bulk of my time having FaceTime with our with our founders, and that that I think is is where we like to call it is our differentiator. You know, is that we're we're actually going to get a lot of FaceTime with our founders. You know, I, I called a few of our, our um, founders this morning to kind of pick their brain. Told them I was coming on here today and said, "What makes us different than than some of the other investors?" And and one of them quoted me as in saying, "You know, you guys." bring some expertise, not only bring some expertise with you, but you're willing to get to work with us. You're willing to sit down, have some tough conversations, roll your sleeves up and actually help us out. And that's what we like to claim to be, is, is hands-on investors. Yeah. You know, Greg has a has a very in-depth role right now at Wireless. I've jumped into a few other smaller roles among the portfolio, whether it's special projects, ongoing things that I can help them with, build models, you know, even post, you know, investment. So, so at the 
the ethos of it, if I would like to use one word to describe, it would be we're Antar investors. Okay, I want to I want to double down on that. So the traditional venture model, right? You make some bets, and I, I see this a lot in venture where, hey, if you have companies that aren't headed in the right direction, like your time is better spent, max typically maximizing those that are doing well, rather than trying to prop up the the firms that falling short. Mm -hmm. Is that is that accurate within AIM? Traditionally, well? that's accurate. I would say AIM, I could make the argument is a little different. We have some right now that are currently struggling, and I'm still spending a sizable amount of time because they have gone through a number of cuts, layoffs, things like that, and so I'm jumping in to, to wear a few hats and help them out where I can. I mean, as far as opening their, answering their customer service line over the weekend because we don't have enough CSRs to cover the line. Yeah. You know, so, so again, that, that's what we like the claim that we're there to help you out. Don't go out and hire an employee if we can fill that role on a temporary basis or a small part-term basis. Okay, so walk me through, like, what is a, what does the hands-on relationship look like? Are you guys having, like, weekly cadence meetings, checking in, talking about KPIs with the founders? Are you, like, that in the detail, or, like, does it... Depend on the week, it, or it, it depends on the week. Currently, one right now that's gone through some rough times. I spend four days a week with their executive team. Wow, for at least what? thirty minutes to an hour. We talk through kind of all of the decisions that are kind of being need to make. You know, we need we've we've cut back this much on the employees, but we need to bring somebody back to fill this role. Um, what should we do? We're changing marketing strategy and spend. Where should we allocate the proper dollars? We're pulling back on the IT. This is the new strategy going forward so that we don't need as many resources. So I would call, I would describe it as more of, you know, kind of macro level guidance. You know, what would a C-suite be discussing weekly or daily when a company's going through some hard times? You know, that C-suite at this particular deal has kind of been pulled back and we're kind of filling that void for the, the part that's missing there. It's sitting it, in some of those chairs. Is it primary to you as like a general partner that's, what, what is your official title? My official title is Vice President. Vice President. So as a VP, uh, you know, is that, you're, do you have additional associates that come with you to work on these portfolio codes or is it kind of you hopping in there rolling, rolling up your sleeves? It's kind of me there hopping and rolling my sleeves up. We have had in the past some interns and associates. We do have the large benefit of having Adam's Wealth as part of the fund. We're, we're, we're basically a, a fund with inside of Adam's Wealth. You know, so we can rely on them for compliance, back office, they help us, they, they shoulder the lion's share of, of what we go through with, with our annual audits and things like that. So that takes things off my back, investor relations kind of falls on them. So we have a tremendous, you know, amount of brain power up there that sits on a traditional wealth management side that also we have some of their resources to help us out, you know, day to day. It's a lot, Greg and I that we kind of roll our sleeves up, we wear a lot of hats, I still look at a lot of deals, perform due diligence, you know, but, you know, the bulk of my focus right now and Greg's is, is spending time with our portfolio companies. So traditional venture, uh, a lot of funds will have somewhat of a complex management fee structure where after their investment period, they toggle down their fee income because typically it's not as strenuous on, it's not as taxing on their time mm -hmm. outside of their deployment period. It sounds like in your fund, you are maybe a little more active mm -hmm. than other VCs I've talked to. Do you guys, so with that, do you keep a simple management fee like across the entire life of the fund? Or do you taper that down after deployment period? Or how do you Currently, it's, it's simple uh, across the fund right now. 
Gotcha. So you still have fee income, rep, you know, coming in mm -hmm. because, hey, you're basically working day in and day out with yes. these portfolio companies. Yeah, yeah, and and again, like you said, a lot of venture will, you know, spend the time with the good ones. We're still trying to make sure those bad ones are viable. You know, we. We as fiduciaries feel like we took money from investors and we're going to do everything we can to suck as much out of every dollar. Hey, for anyone listening that is trying to start a fund out there, I know how difficult it can be. If you are in need of any additional advisory or consulting services on your business, feel free to fill out the application included in the show notes. My partners and I are always looking for new firms to either invest in or partner with, and we'd love to take a look at your firm. Now, back to the show. A lot of at least the common venture psychology is, hey, look, look, every company we invest in should be able to return our entire principal of the fund. Do you guys approach your underwriting from the same way or where you're maybe a little more actively involved than other firms? Does that, do you have a tilt one way or another or how, how do you still underwrite? That? You know, that I kind of mentioned early on, we've, we've re-upped on some of our investments. Yeah. And, and we kind of went through you know, additional due diligence, I guess you would say, on those deals. We didn't just say, hey, it's performing well. We kind of went back and looked at it, you know, if this was a fresh investment, would we re-up? You know, so we, we kind of try to take, it, there's obviously a biased approach that comes into it because we know the management teams well, but um, that's where, where we try to, to make up the difference. You know, obviously you look across venture averages and it's hits rate, if you're hitting 30%, you're, you're, a top tier fund at that and we don't we know that that is the it's simply a numbers game at the end of the day and that some are going to fail and some are going to make it but we want to underwrite all of them like each one of them are going to be our own money yeah you know we, we we did early on make some ones that we knew were a little bit more mature a little bit untraditional for venture money but we had some opportunities and felt like that might have been a safer bet but we didn't look at that as, as a hedge against everything else we were doing you know we thought this was a solid investment that could grow rather large in the next few years and it's one of the investments we've actually exited in, and it was a nice return for us but we we take a similar strategy on most of the things we're underwriting is we think this is going to be a really good play for the next five years and we're going to get a lot of well, I want to pivot here. Let's talk, you've brought it up several times already, this relationship with Adam's Wealth. Can you explain the relationship there, how they participate in your firm, what the what the day-to-day -day looks like, and how that came to be? Yeah, so we, we are a product offering, essentially. AIM Ventura lives inside of, of Adam's Wealth. So the majority of our LPs come through that Adam's Wealth network. You know, and sorry, I, what is Adam's Wealth? So Adam's Wealth is, is an RAA based on Logan, Wealth Manager, that I would call a very forward-thinking, proactive wealth manager. You know, they're willing to invest in things like creating a venture fund, a real estate fund, a hedge fund, a volatility fund, things like that. So within all these product offerings, Inventura being one of them. You know, so we are a product with inside of Adams Wealth. And so credit to, to Craig Adams and the team up there for being very proactive and willing to do this. Yeah, I, I don't know how many RAAs would be willing to support a venture fund like this. You know, you're sucking up a lot of liquidity at once. You don't know, you know, it's usually a six to eight year life cycle to get liquidity back. So um, we do have a handful of investors that come through other, other sources that are non-Adams Wealth clients. Okay, I'm going to jump into this. Mm -hmm. uh, like, so they... Uh, when you're saying it's Adams Wealth Investors, is Adams Wealth investing off of its company's balance sheet into the fund? 
It's or is it primarily it's investors mm -hmm. that they're managing typical financial asset management, right? Of yep. stock and bond portfolio. They're now saying, hey, we, we have this internal venture fund that if you're looking for different, you know, types of return profile, you can go here. Is that right? That's exactly how it is. This is hey, we now have this on top of your your public equities, your bonds, everything like that. We now have a product offering. You know, if you're a accredited investor, if you qualify for this private fund and you can allocate a piece of your portfolio to this. So each individual investor was kind of presented that opportunity and shows to invest it. It was just coming as more of a warm lead because of the relationship there with the, the wealth advisory side. Right. And so the wealth advisory side also takes fees for asset under management as any traditional RA would, mm -hmm. right? Does a representative, uh, a financial advisor at Adams Wealth, do they still collect AUM fees if they are handing off a client over to your fund? Essentially, yeah. Okay, gotcha. I just didn't know if there was, you know, I'm trying to think through any conflicts of interest. Yeah, and, and there, Adams comes at it more of a team approach. You know, it's not like an Edward Jones or a Raymond yeah. James type advisory that each client there, it's a very team approach that nobody kind of really owns a client of their own. Oh, okay. It's all a team approach. Yeah. I think that's what I love most about what, what the Adams strategy is. It's very, you know, clients focused and that we're gonna you're gonna get this whole team whether somebody's gonna tax somebody's gonna public markets somebody's gonna private markets yeah. you get all of this offered to you that's what i was worried about kind of this competitive internal nature no i i wouldn't say that there's any conflicts or competitive it's very, very cohesive it's very cohesive all one in the same so you get to basically utilize any sort of adam's wealth resources because i assume they participate as part of the general partnership mm -hmm. right and so it's kind of just a very synergistic relationship yes that's fantastic yes. that's great yeah the, and, and it makes our life easier with investor relations because they're actively managing most of in, investors portfolio you know so we have more of a touch point with investors than some traditional funds have yeah you know we still put together a quarterly update for our lps but then there's ongoing dialogue that typically happens yeah no that's that's fantastic so what percent of your assets in your fund have come via Adam's Wealth? Probably 70%. Okay. You know, and then Greg has some personal relationships that he's brought in as well, too. So that's just like an evergreen, you know, that's what you're saying, right? It's kind of this evergreen, you know, capital raiser for you mm -hmm. guys. And, and yeah, now fund one and the side cards are kind of closed. You know, we're trying to figure out, you know, what the best strategy is for us for the second fund. Well, what are you guys thinking? You know, I, I, Greg and I have had a number of conversations, you know, I, I'd like to target about the same size of fund, but probably do less investments. You know, again, not very traditional venture, but because we've found success in this hands-on, you know, maybe rather than 11 investments, maybe it's eight. And maybe a little bit, you know, we spread the money out a little bit better, still we'll stay with that hands-on approach and, and really dial into to what we feel like are, are some winners. Yeah. So you've already, because you've already had DPI out of your first fund, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're leveraging that as you go to market. Yeah, we will leverage that when it goes to market. It, we, we believe our bigger winners are yet to come as, yeah. as far as liquidity events, you know, so we we haven't leveraged that as much as we, we believe we can in the future. Yeah. So what is the size of Adam's Wealth? How big of an RIA is it? Cause if, I think it's probably just shy of half a billion at this point. Okay. So it's relatively smaller. Yeah. Yeah. 
Because I was, you know, a lot of RIA, you know, I get asked all the time if, you know, funds should try and develop relationships with RIAs and if it's a synergistic relationship and how it can work. But obviously you've demonstrated that it's, uh, it's, it's been a great model. Yeah, and, and that's a credit to the, to the guys at Adams, you know, to, to Riley and Craig and Cormac and David and, and the team up there that have been, you know, willing to kind of learn about the venture space. You know, yeah. these guys come from some big resumes and manage some big public market balance sheets and, you know, have really, you know, they're smart guys, so they've, they've had the opportunity and, and took in the um, challenge of learning the venture space. You know, so that's the credit to them on that for being supportive of what we've kind of done with him. Well, Nick, I got to ask, I ask everyone on this show to kind of back up a little high level here is the name of this podcast is, is Funds That Won. Uh, you know, in your opinion, you know, what are the most important factors that make a fund win? That's a good question. You know, obviously the, the first thing that comes to mind is, is return of capital. You know, we want to, you know, three, four X people's money that they've invested in us. You know, that's number one, you know, obviously cut and dry way to win. But also, you know, for me personally, you know, I, I want to create companies that, that are impactful and, you know, create jobs and, and sustainability, grow founders, things like that. And, you know, the number one thing that we've gotten to do with our fund, in my opinion, in addition to, to financial success is, is Gap Wireless, you know. Gab Wireless has not only performed very well from a financials perspective, but it's making, a, in my opinion, a large societal impact. Tell, know, me, tell me about it. Yeah, so, so Gab Wireless is, is a cell phone and a watch that's specifically for children. You know, it's to basically keep social media out of, of teens' hands. You know, it's the ethos there. And Nate Randall, our CEO there, is very good at, at delivering the message of safe technology for kids. You know, and Greg Cole, our founder, also has, you know, Greg and Nate and many people that are now at Gab that experience this with their, their teens growing up. And the dangers that teens now face with putting a, basically a computer in your pocket in front of them and access to the world. You know, so throttling that back while also allowing a parent to communicate with their kids. It's been fun, you know, from kind of a, a macro level to watch the impact of what Gap Wireless has done and heard stories from parents like, I'm so glad that Gap exists because I can communicate with my kid, whether it's on their watch or their phone. My nieces and nephews have them, so now I get phone calls from my nieces and nephews on watches. And so that from, a, from what you could maybe phrase as a social impact, you know, not just a financial investment that has done really well for us, but something that I feel like is making a difference in the world. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. I know I know many people at Gab. It's a, it's an awesome company. But I have to ask: Does that actually come into play when you're underwriting your companies, right? Or is it purely a fiscal underwrite, a founder underwrite? Like, does the impact ESG or DEI actually play a factor in your investments? I wish I could say yes, it does. But but that's a secondary motive. Yeah. You know, for us, underwriting is. Is, is this going to be a good investment that returns a good amount of capital in the, the time frame that we need it to? Yeah. Well, there's a debate in the industry, right? Obviously, if, if you know, focusing on, uh, you know, ESG or DI factors that can sometimes nerf the quality of an investment because you're excluding, you know, uh, you know financial motives. Does, do you agree, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, do you agree? Do you disagree? Is this kind of validated? 
I could probably argue it both ways at this yeah. point. I would say that, uh, that again, most funds are in the space to make money. You know, if you can do some good in the world while making money, even better. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think most of us are, are in it to, to return capital to the investors that have placed money with us and the belief that we're going to return them a good return. Yeah. They're locking up money for a long period of time. This isn't a liquid vehicle that they're investing in. Like, I can't just liquidate a, a piece of stock and somebody can't just liquidate a piece of stock in, in my fund, and even at a loss, you know. So I believe that as a fiduciary, our duty is, number one, to return capital. Yeah. And a good return capital. Excellent. Well, I got. I, I know that you're involved with, uh, you know, my alma mater, Utah State. You've recently got involved with what? What's it? Is it Old Main Ventures? Old Old Main Ventures. Some yeah. confuse it as Old Man Ventures, and they think I'm the old man with <laughs> Old Man Ventures there. But no, I appreciate you putting the plug in there. Yeah, we uh, we set up Old Main Ventures uh, about two years ago. Uh, Greg Cole was a part of that. Blake Gerstler, that's heavily involved with the school. Paul Felstead, who is a finance professor up there. Um, it's been amazing to see the support from, from the alumni willing to, to support what we're doing there. You know, we kind of took bits and pieces of the student funds that have done a phenomenal job throughout Utah the last couple of years. Got uh, the playbook from, from Jeremy Lund, who had been, you know, part of setting up University Venture Fund back in the day. He kind of gave us the playbook a few years ago uh, to set it up outside the university, you know. So obviously, number one was getting support from the university. Uh, Paul Fels had played a, a pinnacle role in that, his, his involvement with the school and how respected he is up there. And so we're now in the fourth semester of it. Interns will serve typically for two semesters. We do eight interns at a time. We will get deals from pre-seed to series A. and. In addition to seeing the alumni support, it, the, the other thing that's been really cool for me is how willing entrepreneurs are to spend some time with students. You know, we write checks, maximum of $25,000, which is usually not a big, impactful check into a seed round or a Series A. Yeah. But because of the student aspect and the learning aspect that comes with it, entrepreneurs have been more than willing to let us participate. Yeah. So, sorry, let me cut you off. Yeah, go ahead. The premise is that you can get students involved in venture while they're in their undergrad or postgraduate programs and they can come do actual deals mm -hmm. while they're in their undergrad is that right yeah so so my goal with it is basically they get the experience of what you know a first or second year venture analyst would get yeah their job is to go out and source deals they bring our deal to our weekly meeting say i like this deal we discuss it we vote on it from there as a group um then we put together a due a due diligence team that's a Due diligence very similar to what I do at A. You know, right. 12 part due diligence that they put together this on a team, and then they present those deals to an investment committee made up of our investors of the fund that are all alumni of the school. Yeah. And so they're getting that very proactive, hands-on experience. They're gonna write a check, they're dialoguing with the entrepreneur. I'm just there to kind of support and patch out like this is this is how we, we do things. It is 95% student driven. You know, so we just actually, in the last couple of days, made our fourth and fifth investment out of the company. Oh, that's awesome. So it has been very rewarding for me to be a part of. You know, not only as an alumnus that has been a lifelong supporter of Utah State, but also yeah. seeing the impact it has in these students' lives. And I mean, we have freshmen to, to seniors right now as, as interns, and they're much more proactive and hungry than I ever was at that age. Yeah, well, look, I mean, so I know those guys, Paul and Blake, and. 
all those guys are, you know, lifelong mentors for me. You know, they're phenomenal. So I'm a USU alum mm -hmm. as well. And gosh, I mean, what a fantastic program. I did the, I did the program that Jeremy set up mm -hmm. when I was in my undergrad. And, um, phenomenal, right? It's like absolutely phenomenal experience. I would say that a lot of the foundation of my skill sets that I now, you know, utilize today. So, I mean, I, yeah, what an awesome op, uh, organization. I'm so glad you guys are doing that. It's uh, really phenomenal there. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It, it has been uh, a lot of work, but a lot of fun and rewarding experience for me. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so, Nick, tell me, what is your favorite part about running a fund? Uh, my favorite part is, is working with founders. You know, I would, I've described myself before as of having ADD when it comes to, work. If I had to go to a factory or an office and work on the same thing every day, I'd go nuts in, in two weeks. But I get to itch that ADD that I have because I get to be a part of, you know, right now, call it eight companies from some level or another, and get to work with some really awesome founders that are, you know, founders are a different breed. You know, they're willing to put everything on the line to risk building something that could be, you know, like I said, like we talked about Gap, could change society in some ways, you know, whether it's fintech changing the way payments are made, or it's, you know, rent dynamics with credit re reporting for the multifamily system, things like that. It is just the best part of my life is working with founders that are putting everything they have into to changing the way things are done, either making them simpler or making an impact on society. Yeah. What is your least favorite part? about running a fund. I hope none of our CPA friends are listening because I don't love going through audits and logistics and things like that and some of the legality that goes into it, but that's necessary with a fund. You know, we got to think, do things above board to make sure we're doing right by all of our investors. So it is not always the funnest day-to-day -day stuff, but it's, it's needed and, and part of what we have to do. Now, does Adam's Wealth bear the burden for some of that for you guys or? They do on some part. Uh, yeah. We have a Dylan that is our other compliance officer at Adams that does a phenomenal job on that end, uh, helping with the legal side of things, helping manage attorneys and audit. But I will jump in on, on quite a few things as well, too. Yeah, I gotcha. Hey, look, you mentioned uh, as you were talking about Old Main that you've got a 12 step diligence process. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, you know, we have this, it kind of lives in, in a spreadsheet and we've got 12 different tabs in it. Don't ask me to name each of the 12 tabs because I probably couldn't get through it. But, you know, we kind of talk about um, positive negatives of the deal, um, the team. We get really in depth on the team. You know, that's something that I've really learned in the last four years is how important due diligence on a founding team is. Um, you know, we look at the market size, we look at risk, we do a couple different exit scenarios, we do a return profile on it, we do a financial model on it. I mean, these kids are really getting in-depth on as much due diligence as they can. But, but you also do that at the AIM level, right? Yeah. It's, Is it's, it the same process? It's, it's a little bit different process, you know, but they are, are pretty similar to each other. Okay. You know, what I did in the first semester at Old Main was kind of give them some ideas of what I did with my due diligence at AIM. And a lot of our stuff for AIM, we had an intern that had been at the Wolverine Fund right before I joined AIM. Like I mentioned, I joined AIM when it was when it was just under a year old. She had brought some of those things over from Wolverine Fund. So you can say that a lot of things that came from Wolverine Fund came to AIM, then went to Old Main. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so but at AIM, this 12-step diligence process, you, you said that the one thing people 
tend to overlook, or maybe you alluded to that, that uh, maybe you didn't realize was so important, was analyzing founders and the yeah. founding team. Is that right? And I think it's also the most difficult part of due diligence. So let's talk about it. So how, you know, how do you go in and how do you underwrite a, a team? Yeah, I mean, you know, the first place we're going to go is, is what experience do you have? Have you built a company before? Have you gone through an exit? Whether that was as a founder or part of an early stage team. You know, that for us will check a good box. But, but the second thing I would say I really want to look at, you know, especially if it's a sole founder, you know, what is your skill set and you recognize your skill set? You know, a lot of founders are very good at the initial idea and building the company early on. Like I said, I, I, I love how much founders are willing to put on the line to, to build something that they're passionate about. But sometimes some of the best founders I've seen know that they're not built to be a long-term CEO. That maybe they were, their roots are in sales or marketing or ops like that. And, you know, they're, they're willing to work with investors later on to help put themselves in the right position, identify good skill set around them, and let the, those peers around them grow the company. You know, there's very few people that are good at everything that you need in a, in a C-level person. Right. Gotcha. Is there, is there, crass, is there, excuse me, is there crossover between the founders at your uh, different portfolio companies? Like, do you try and create synergistic environments in that way, or do you kind of independently work with each team? So, so that's what we've, we've benefited some from, from investing in, in similar verticals, mostly those that have kind of serviced the multifamily sector. They've been able, they're not competing with each other, but they've been able to, you know, whether it's warm customer introductions or warm sales lead. We've had a few that have, have partnered on some initiatives to work together, few that have wanted to get into that space that have utilized those resources. So I, I feel like we've done a good job in, in kind of facilitating those partnerships, potential partnerships or relationships that benefit from each other. Yeah, excellent. Well, look, um, hey, I don't want to take too much of your time. I, I appreciate you being so generous here. As we, as we start to wrap up, I do want to ask you, you know, some more personal questions. Mm -hmm. um, what are some habits that you have that you feel like have attributed to your success? Uh, I would say as far as, as being on, you know, I started my career on the sales side. I spent six and a half years in, in sales side in my work, um, a little bit of cap raising, and then moved to the buy side within just over four years ago, I feel like my probably stronger skill set is, is, is my, what you could call people skill set. You know, I can get along and work with a lot of different types of personalities. And I think I developed that, you know, early on in the sales side. You know, I did a lot of industrial type businesses when I was on the, the banking side. And that came with a lot of unique personalities, a lot of founders in that that were significantly older than me early on in my career and it, it, I had to work really hard at you know gaining their trust and their respect and, and developed uh, what I think is, is a skill set in working with people that think differently than I do, that believe differently than I do, but understanding how to work together. You know, I had a former boss describe M&A and, and, you know, investing as, as you know, getting on the, on the sell side when, when we were advising is getting everybody to look at the same thing through four or five different windows, whether that's a lawyer or a buyer or a seller, you all want to get to that kind of in route, but you're all kind of looking at it through different angles. 
And so I've tried to utilize that on the buy side and looking at things like if I was in that founder chair or if I was in that chair of the other position, what would they think? You know, so, and I've learned a tremendous amount from Greg Cole. Greg has been the best mentor I've ever had in my life and probably will be the best mentor. And I would say his strongest skill set is his emotional IQ, you know, and his ability to work with people and build management teams and gain people's trust. And Greg is one of the smartest people I've ever met when it comes to, to finances. And, you know, he's a CPA by trade, sat in that CFO's seat for a company that exited almost a billion dollars, but I've never seen him once bring his ego into the room and say, I'm the one that knows how to do this. I'm the one that knows numbers better than anybody. So I've been able to take a lot of valuable lessons from him in how to, you know, build culture and, and maintain culture and relationships, you know. At the end of the day, these guys are putting trust in us that we're a good partner for them and, you know, we're trusting them by placing money with them. I feel like it is it is, you know, for lack of a better word, marriage, yeah. you know. You know, obviously we're the ones writing the check and sometimes I think that's viewed as, you know, we're the boss, we're here, but it needs to be a, a give and take relationship on both ends in my belief. Yeah. What's something you know now that you wish you knew when you just started? That is a good question. Uh, how hard it is to grow a company. You know, I have a great appreciation now, you know. Uh, I, I'm sure, you, you know, you and I have both, you know, seen all these success stories that you read about in Wall Street Journal, and you don't see, you know, the, the hard days really hit. You know, it's hard, and to sit with a founder and, and realize that their company's on the verge of failure, or it has failed, and they put everything into it, you know, so it is, there's, there's a human element, I guess, to describe it that comes with this that I didn't expect in some ways and how hard emotionally it can be to, to go through the roller coaster with an entrepreneur. Yeah. What are some of your biggest business or investing pet peeves? Oof. That's a good question. I would say business pet peeves is lack of patience. You know, and it, it's hard, and I can sympathize with entrepreneurs that early on are willing to do anything to get a sell. You know, they'll build, they can claim they build anything into their product if one customer will tell them, yes, but I want this. You know, so lack of patience is maybe the best way to describe that in, in building a product in the right timeline to go out and continue to sell it, not building to what one customer or two customers want. What was the other question? Just your pet peeves, business, investing, even personal, right? Just pet peeves, right? Things that drive you crazy. Uh, pet peeves, uh, the other ones are, and I'm sure you've seen this a lot, where we, you've said there's a lot of people out there who claim that they can do certain things, they'll take money from early stage companies and never deliver on it. You know, so I simply want you to do what you say you're going to do. And I understand when it comes to investing that we can put all, together all these projections, these roadmap of what's going to happen. But if you fail with an effort and you've tried to deliver on those things, that's one thing. But if you've done this and I've handed you some money and you don't do what you tell me you're going to do, or on the other side, you're, you know, an investor's putting out money and not doing what they say they're going to do. We've had some experience where investors have said, yeah, we'll fund the rest of this round and the deal we're in, and then they go cold on you, and we're stuck trying to figure out a pathway forward. We've dealt with that recently. So it's simply, you know, at the root of it, doing 
what you say you're going to do. Following through. Following through. That's a better way to say it than I could. Love it. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your generous time today and talking about AIM, Ventura, Capital. What an awesome firm, awesome group, and an awesome story for you thank guys. You. This was fun. I figured two Aggies together, we'd have a good time. That's right. That's right. Appreciate it. All information shared are solely the thoughts and opinions of the author or guests. Content is for educational purposes only. Do not take any information from the show as financial, investment, tax, or legal advice. Seek counsel from a licensed professional before taking action in any business pursuit. We're not selling or soliciting security in any way, shape, or form. The host may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. Guests on the show may be current or historical clients of Fund Launch, Fund Launch Partners, or Black Card Capital Partners.